Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast, where every week, Danny and Mauda Vega discuss topics that help families live a healthy and active lifestyle with their little ones, including nutrition and training, peaceful parenting, education, and mindset. To stay up to date, make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast and check out the blog at www.fatfuel.family. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at dannyvega.ms, at fatfueledmom, and at fatfueledkids, and fatfueledfamily on YouTube. Enjoy the show. guys, we're going to take a minute right now to tell you about one of our amazing sponsors, Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals is a company that we've been using for years now. They make high potency, high quality, lab tested CBD formulas at an affordable price. They offer ketogenic, paleo, gluten-free, sugar-free, lab tested formulas. You all may remember when we did our cannabis series last year. One of the things we learned with CBD is that the research is pretty clear on dosage. 5 to 20 grams per kilogram is what you should be taking per day. And most of the quote-unquote CBD you see online and on Amazon is severely underdosed. Most of these products are offering dosages that are so low, you have to down a bottle a day. (laughs) That's why we love Santa Cruz Medicinals, because they offer highly dosed, potent CBD with clean ingredients, and they have several cool products. But we want to share our favorites with you. So what are your favorites, Lola? Um, All of them. No, really. I have yet to try a product from them that I don't love. However, I will talk about some of my ride or die products. So during my cycle, I get horrible migraines, guys. And my go-to is definitely their peppermint tincture or the 10,000 milligrams to get a potent anti-inflammatory dose. Uh, Peppermint has been shown in studies to relieve migraine pain. But let's talk about the pain salve real quick because this I use for almost everything. And everyone in this household agrees we cannot live without it. So the CBD pain salve, it has clean ingredients that you can trust, but it also has peppermint, which really, really helps. And so what I like to do is I'll rub some on my temples and it really provides instant relief for me when I have bad headaches. But of course, I'll use it as well for any muscle pain that I have. Well, I'm personally a huge fan of the 10,000 milligram bottles of CBD in MCT oil. I put it in my coffee and then again at night, I'll, I'll put some more in like some broth or whatever drink I'm drinking, a hot tea uh, to get an adequate dose for the day. I also love the pain salve, especially when I'm extra sore. We usually take turns massaging it onto each other and it always does the job. You guys also have to try the new CBD infused hemp and collagen protein. If you're a fan of horchata, you will love this one. Oh, that one is so good, guys. We just tried it and it is so good. Um, So yeah, if you're interested, check them out. You can find them at scmedicinals.com. And of course, don't forget to use the code fatfueledmom at checkout to save 15% on your order and get free shipping, guys. Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Vega, and I'm joined by my meathead wife. Oh my gosh. Maura, how are always, you, my he always gives me a new adjective. I am I'm good. <laughs> but thanks for calling me a meathead. Yeah. Well, are you a meathead or are you not? Actually, you I would did prefer, cardio. Did you do cardio? I today? did cardio today, so I don't know wow, what you're that's talking crazy. about. Crazy. You did cardio. How was that? But it was I mean, like kettlebell swings, probably. What, what? No, I actually did cardio, but just stairmaster. Yeah. That's what I like. Because I feel like I get much more done, which I do. I love it. I love in a less, segment. like less amount of time. So I did 25 minutes, but that's like probably the equivalent of like 45 minutes of uphill walking. Cause I go, I go, you go hard. I go what was hard. Your, what was the, uh, I, I chill around five. Okay. But then, you know, I'll skip steps and then I put it up for a minute or so, you know, awesome good stuff. 
Very cool. Well, we're super excited. Um, it seems like today is um, God Save the Queen Day because we <laughs> I just did an Instagram with a mutual friend of our guest um, who's from, um, I think he's originally from London. I don't, I don't know where Tim's originally from. Um, but our guest this week is a functional nutritional therapist, and his work has been featured in the Daily Mail, Sky Sports, Mary Claire, uh, and Women's Health Magazine. Merrick has spent the last 15 years building a model of personalized nutrition, one that is based on the data of 2,500 individuals, 9,000 test results, and countless hours pouring through the scientific literature. He offers one-to-one consultations with clients from his office in Harley Street or via phone or Skype. Welcome to the show, Merrick Doyle. What's up, brother? Yeah, uh, all is good this end. A little bit like Groundhog Day being locked down. So oh, yeah. here I sit in my garden office and from what I can see, everything is nice and calm. Well, yeah. luckily you're not. I, I, I saw Australia's, uh, some people in these projects. Uh, I think it's public house, housing. Public housing yeah, are like 3, locked 000, up. 3,000 people in public housing. And oh, it's just ridiculous. It's yeah, man. Yeah, it's and, kind of scary. Yeah, it's yeah. When they scary. say, "Well, we're all in the same boat," no. you really realize <laughs> that actually, no, we're weathering the same storm, but we are categorically not all in the same boat. Who's yes. we? Right? Like right. who's we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We can mean very different things depending on who wants us to, uh, yeah, come together and. Who wants us to come apart? And well, we've seen plenty of uh, those intentions, haven't we? Yes, we, we have, have, which is kind of one of the one of the bright sides, I think, of this whole thing. I do think that people, you know, the truth has come out a little bit. Less apathy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Colors are shining. <laughs> oh, well, that's for sure. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, there's very few people without a strong opinion. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. So true. Well, they did leave us in our homes, you know, to go research, board. Like, what else do we have yeah. to do besides argue with each other online? <laughs> That's so true. Well, exactly. But uh, oh, well, yeah, we PubMed versus Instagram. I know who I'm back in. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here. We can't wait to get started. So uh, let's jump into it. We always lead off with the question, what is the most critical problem you're currently trying to solve? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Um I think there's there's two main problems for me. One being that I don't feel there is enough uh, debate, discussion, exploration of these key subjects uh, without an agenda. Um, it's, It's often very dogmatic. It's often selling an idea. It's often attempting to prove why everything that's previously been said by our team is categorically right in every single way and need not be revised ever again. Um, So I feel like I, as a practitioner of personalized medicine, as somebody who continually uses the data to inform what I do rather than simply what I like the sound of, uh, I feel like that's a area that potentially I could offer an opinion from. And equally, on a more selfish level, I would like to uh, get more exposure so that practitioners from various corners of the globe can can actually determine if they resonate with what I say, if what I'm saying makes sense to them, that they can 
get in contact with me and criticize my opinions and interrogate them because I do struggle to find people to interrogate and yeah, lay it on thick and, and then push and prod at the model. And that's something that let's be honest, is a whole lot more efficient than me criticizing my own ideas because of the very nature of that. Right. It means I'm criticizing my work for the last 15 years and it's hard to do yeah. without yeah. taking unnatural and, and very tiring steps to yeah. try and remain yeah. neutral. It's tough. It is tough. Yeah. And it's funny because we were just with some friends who were in town and uh, I said something that I'd, I wasn't aware of how hilarious it was as I said it, but our friends started cracking up at me and I said, you know, I just hate how politicized science has gotten. And then she was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, it's always been that way. And I, I think it's really weird that, you know, you find more scientific inquiry and more open-mindedness uh, a lot of the time in people who aren't entrenched in academia, mm-hmm. you would in the people who are actually supposedly trained mm-hmm. in this method of, of researching uh, without a bias and, and, you know, instead of starting at the point where this is what I want to happen, how am I going to prove it versus this is what I'm trying to find out. And yeah. it's, it's crazy. It's endemic. I know it really is. And I think you touched on something really uh, important that yes, it definitely feels like science has become politicized mainly in the last two years. Um, but I think I, I felt that as well. But yes, in hindsight, it's it's categorically not. I think it simply feels that way because right. now people are getting more information from Instagram influencers. They're, they're <laughs> getting their information from teenage models right. who yeah. haven't ever looked at a scientific study. They've never looked at a primary source. And consequently, I feel like the gears have shifted a little bit in the sense that now there's this full frontal assault on the health of the wider population. And it's dressed up with science. It's, it's, it's got these shiny connections to head researchers of the nutrition department of harvard university and it, it's it's being sold to the masses more they're going direct to consumer in a way that we've yeah. never seen before and that feels like a really important thing for for professionals and people in it to to counter yeah and the worst part too is that you know the graphics are always so pretty, yeah. you know, everything's so shiny and beautiful <laughs> so shiny. and it's just a shiny turd, you know, it's just <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it's a bunch of nothing dressed up. Um, I think a good jump off point would be to start with this fantastic article you just wrote about a month ago uh, on the study implicating ketogenic diets and endotoxemia, LPS, you know, the conclusion was that a diet high in saturated fat compromises cognitive performance. Can you break down the study design a bit and then offer some nuance as to what you think was really going on with the results? Cool, yeah. So uh, I uh, was sent this article by uh, a uh, a client who who said, are you sure you want me to go on a ketogenic diet? (laughs) And um, so I looked at it and uh, after 
I spat out my coffee. I uh, then obviously uh, started to respond to my thoughts. You know, it's a whole lot easier if I just smashed this article together and then posted them the link. And that's what happened. So what did the study do? So they wanted to determine the impact of particular types of fat on endotoxemia. Now, endotoxemia, just to sidestep and uh, break down what that means, endotoxemia refers to a state where fragments of bacteria, aka endotoxins, have moved out of the gut and into the bloodstream. So anyone is going to have a certain amount of endotoxins in their gut. It can vary depending on the bacterial balance. Um, but the actual presence of those endotoxins in the gut isn't a big deal. Now, the problem is when the gut lining is compromised, when it leaks, uh, at that stage, those endotoxins can now end up inside the bloodstream. And guess what your immune system does when it recognizes their presence? It goes berserk. And the interesting thing is those endotoxins, they are simply fragments of the dead bacteria. They can't infect you. There's no danger. Your immune system has been sculpted by evolution to take no chances. And consequently, we see a substantial inflammatory response. So um, when we see that, that's often what's actually manifesting the symptoms uh, when you've had a really long, stressful day, you come home and you just can't think clearly. You don't want to be around people, little things that wouldn't normally annoy you. Well, they do now. That's almost always going to be driven by endotoxemia. So it is something that's relevant to pretty much every human being who's ever had a stressful day and doesn't feel themselves by the end of it. Brain fog being... Um, that, that common thing. And that's the metric that this study decided to take a look into. So they got 58 individuals and split them into group A, group B. Group A came into the lab, got given a high uh, meal high in saturated fats. Group B, guess what? Uh, got a, a meal that was uh, higher in monounsaturated fats. They sent them home and then they brought them back in and gave them the opposite meal. The idea being that now we'll get a fair measure, not just of what happened in that group, but equally we'll be able to compare the response of this entire group A to the monounsaturated meal versus the saturated meal. And then we'll be able to do the same for another group. So it gives us a, a nice fair opportunity to see the difference. And I would say, yes, it does give us a fair opportunity. Just one problem. They see compared the levels of endotoxins in the bloodstream after uh, each meal, and they concluded, oh, the average rise in endotoxins was higher on the saturated fats uh, group versus the... Uh, the money on saturated meals. Conclusive proof. Um, <laughs> we, we've sold it. The problem, of course, as they say, 
these meals in saturated fat did not induce a clinically significant level of cognitive impairment. What that means is that the, 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 there was a slight, tiny difference between the two groups, which normally happens when one person reacts badly, as in one person doesn't process the fats effectively. And in those instances, we can't know how relevant that is. If it's one out of 58, well, is that representative of the population at large? That's what clinically significant means. It's a, a term used by statisticians to tell us whether we can put any faith in this particular sample and the results that weren't different enough to be clinically significant or not. And of course, it fails that test of clinical significance. So apologies for the jargon there, but in essence, it doesn't tell us much. Now, what was interesting is that some individuals developed endotoxemia on all meals, and endotoxemia was reliably linked with brain fog. Saturated fat was not linked with brain fog. Not reliably so. Um, so what we can actually take from this uh, is actually something interesting, that endotoxemia is a big deal. We can also take from the fact that such a tiny difference occurred between the, the monosaturates and the, and the saturated group, that there can be a difference. Some people may well be lacking either the immune response or more likely the HDL levels or the cholesterol uh, profile to positively handle a high-fat meal. In which case, surely the question there would be, well, what can we do to identify those individuals that may not be able to uh, metabolize a high saturated fat meal? What can we do to identify them and what can we do to help them? Now, of course, it's really not too difficult. We take care of their gut lining. We sort out their HDL levels. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like the conclusions of the study would be one, people who struggle to handle saturated fats respond badly to saturated fats. However, there isn't any statistical correlation between the two once we look at a population of 58 people. And secondly, endotoxemia can really wreck cognitive performance. But that's not what they went with. <laughs> they went with even a single meal high in saturated fat may impair attention. That's their exact words, despite the fact that's not what their data proved. And they also recognized that there was no link whatsoever in the dietary studies of uh, you know, what they were consuming in between the actual lab meals. Well, I'm glad you some more details down there, but, uh, but yes, um, it's a, uh, it's, it's a big deal in itself. And there's other difficulties with it. The fact that um, this group were, the majority were breast cancer survivors, many of which were still receiving oh, wow. estrogen blockers. Oh. And we know that that's wow. one thing almost guaranteed to wreck your HDL levels. Yeah. Um, it's almost as if it was a setup. 
<laughs> Almost, right? <laughs> Almost, right? Yeah, it could be the fact they were just dim. Um, uh, most scientists, I mean, sometimes, yeah, they are that dim. Often not. <laughs> well, I'm glad you 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 mentioned the the two things because I um, I was going to ask, but now you answered that question. The the factors involved in that small group that didn't you know have that sufficient response, uh, and and I was thinking, well, is it genetics? Like epigenetics. But, yeah, or epigenetics. But you're saying the main factors were HDL and uh, what was the other factor? Well, yeah, so this is the interesting thing. Um, they didn't attempt to break it down by mechanisms. Um, they simply fed the group, saw one little deviation, which, again, by good science cannot be deemed to be statistically significant, um, demonstrated that acknowledged directly um, in, in their uh, – a results section that um, when they tracked dietary patterns outside of the lab, that there was no correlation between saturated fat intake and endotoxemia. They got one unusual outcome within that group of 58, or maybe they had two. They haven't published the individual uh, results, but there has been a minor discrepancy to the point that we have this tiniest difference in the mean outcomes but one that leaves the uh, the distribution of the results so closely matched against one another that we can't possibly determine whether that was simply chance or whether there is an impact. That's what the, the lack of statistical significance means. Well, some somewhere in an alternate universe, someone's going to actually look at this and, and try to replicate the results and, and go deeper provide, like you said, the distribution, provide uh, some attempts at explaining, you know, why X amount of people did not provide, you know, get that response. Because it's it's also important to note that um, there are going to be people that don't do well with um, certain fat intakes, certain right. fat sources, um, mm. you know, even like, for example, like for example, someone, someone with some genetic mutation that doesn't allow them to detox from things like uh mm. you know oxalates like the apoe yeah oh yeah or the apoe yeah like, uh, or or like a group like like with the oxalates imagine this person's eating blueberries and and avocados and almonds and almond flour and they're like i feel terrible it must be yeah. the ketogenic diet right. which in their case is probably just you know focusing on different sources that may not be as high in oxalates Oh, exactly that. And, and, and this is where I'm, I'm glad you touched on the mechanisms, because if we don't consider mechanisms, we don't attempt to explain anything, then we're left with this black box thinking. Input goes in, input comes out. Um, and I mean, that is, I feel like, the biggest failing of evidence-based medicine. I'm continually seeing my palm hit my forehead <laughs> with every time I hear practitioners saying, well, we are an evidence-based medicine establishment because mm-hmm. evidence-based medicine seeks to determine what is the true effect of putting this intervention into the black box and taking it out the other side. In other words, what is the effect of this particular drug for migraines? Go. And <laughs> there's no 
there's no acknowledgement of the fact that what if you have 12 people in the study to get horrendously worse? Six have no major impact and four actually get better. Well, statistically, that works. It will now give us the one true figure um, that this has a 22% improvement in a specific marker uh, that they're using to determine success. Whereas, well, why don't we take a look at, you know, what is this drug that we're using? What system does it work on? Maybe it's impacting glutamate GABA. Well, that's all good and well for the people with good, um, with uh, glutamate GABA issues. That that's what needed fixing. What about the individuals for whom they've got such poor glutathione status or energy function that their MDA receptors don't work and this is going to make them a whole lot worse? Why don't we just measure them, see who is now likely to respond well and start pairing interventions to the actual need of those individuals? I appreciate that kills drug sales. I get it. Yeah, I've never understood why. If Let's say I can understand if something comes up after the study was designed that you didn't anticipate. I get that. And then you put it in the, you know, discussion and you talk about it as a limitation, but how often are they knowing this ahead of time and choosing not to include that in the study design when it should be something that if you're studying something that you purport to be an expert in, you should probably know that ahead of time and put it in the study design. Well, exactly that. And it is, I think there's a lot to be said for you know, the, the lab scientists. They are the ones on the front line of developing the knowledge. And I think we need to be grateful for the work they do, the political hoops they jump through in order to improve our knowledge base. But equally, I I don't see many healthy lab scientists. So when when it comes to yeah the, the the disconnect between the research and the front line, I thought what was was interesting. Um, I recently came across a paper which looked at all the leading specialists in each discipline and uh, gave them the opportunity to browse through a, a litany of papers. The conclusion was that only 1.8% of research done in their respective areas could actually be applied to the front line or had any wow. clinical value. Uh-huh. And that is, sums up, and that is, of course, the problem with um, yeah, evidence-based medicine in that, yes, it is so obsessed with with trying to generate the right number um let's take seven different trials and combine them in a meta study now we'll, we'll find that ah this particular drug actually reduces this marker by 33 percent. that's the key that's the real number instead of acknowledging that well now we've collated so many hundreds of different uh, individuals that are tested. That's good. That is helpful to overcome potential sampling error, you know, the luck of the draw. What happens if you ended up with you know, a whole load of people on estrogen blockers in, in one test? Of course, that's going to distort it and make it un, un, um, 
relatable to the general population. So, yeah, the more sample size you can gather, the better. But this this hunt for one figure, oh, this, yeah. the, the true effect size, is is just preposterous. Because I know, it's not all a do. single one of those hundreds of people would ever have actually responded in that exact way. It's just an average. Yeah. The average person has one breast and one testicle. I've never met them. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. So true. So let's shift a little bit because we got to talk about game changers, especially since Robert's topic. Yeah. You know, one of the horrid things that we saw in the Game Changers documentary was this idea that eating a meal high in saturated fat without acknowledging the role of carbohydrates in the meal, of course, would, mm-hmm. you know, thicken the blood and cause this postprandial hypertriglyceridemia. Wow, I did it. Phew, those long words. <laughs> I'm always like, oh no. That, uh, you know, that would somehow increase cardiac risk over time. What are your thoughts on this? So that, that's a confusing one. And I'll be honest, it's not the only confusing thing that sort of came from oh, game sure. changers. I must admit, I didn't get far um, in, <laughs> yeah, in the game changers. It was something that I was interested to see. Um, to yeah, to to see. Okay, what what have they got to to add to this topic? And yeah, and perhaps I'll I'll, I'll touch on some of the uh, the other uh, areas of confusion. Um, but the one thing that I just can't grasp is that when you eat fat. It's meant to get into your bloodstream because if it doesn't get into your bloodstream, your cells cannot take it up as an energy source. Your bloodstream is there to distribute nutrients and oxygen as well as help with the removal of waste products. That's what your bloodstream is for. So in that sense, this idea that we we see a rise in the fats and, and the breakdown products of fat in our bloodstream after eating meal high in fat. I'm, I'm not sure what the what the problem is with that. Um, I think it's probably a sensible thing to consider. Well, does that have any negative effects rather than leaning on the fat phobia that uh, any sort of fat anywhere must be bad? Oh my goodness, there's more fat in the bloodstream. That's what's meant to happen after you eat fat. So it's difficult to respond to an argument that is basically saying when humans eat food, it ends up in their bloodstream. I I would love to see, are they connecting that up to negative health outcomes? And if so, can we see some evidence for that? But yeah, by the sounds of it, it, it's simply leveraging this fat phobia to, to, to imply that it's somehow bad. Yeah. This reminds me, you know, I'll be, I'll try to be as objective as possible when I say this, cause I, I, I will say that I subscribe to this idea that a lot of my friends who are either interventional cardiologists here in the States, um, some of the engineers, you know, Ivor Cummins and, and, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dave, uh, Feldman. Dave Feldman <laughs> talking about, for example, like, you know, as you improve insulin sensitivity and um, you you consume a high fat diet, for a lot of people, it tends to increase you know LDL and total cholesterol. And what the uh, what the feeling is is that 
you know, these people are transporting a bunch of energy and they're getting really good at it. And so there's going to be in a uh, snapshot uh, mm-hmm. evidence of this happening uh, because your cholesterol is higher. But because, like you said, we focus on this one factor, for example, cholesterol bad, uh, LDL bad, uh, we automatically assume without any um, respect paid to, you know, what are the actual clinical outcomes of having increased uh, LDL and, and total cholesterol just saying automatically like, see, see, they have the eat a ketogenic diet and look at how many people are increasing their, their cholesterol. And that's obviously bad. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the cholesterol myth it is a very weird thing to be talking about in 2020. <laughs> it's the sort of thing is that I would never... Uh, back when I got into this field in 2005, I never thought there would still be discussions going on in 2020 about the cholesterol. Sure, Ansel Keys had a hypothesis. It was disproven nearly instantly. And by every single evidence that has ever um, come into play. Um, but actually, I, you know, let, let me rephrase that. The idea that cholesterol is bad has been disproved now cholesterol of course can definitely play a role in coronary heart risks Mm -hmm. that is not something that we would dispute but it's obviously a lot more nuanced than cholesterol bad um cholesterol equals risk because well, cholesterol in itself is so incredibly helpful to deliver these energy compounds to the cells that need them. That's what we want. Um, but there are circumstances where cholesterol can become an issue. And so let's say you have high cholesterol. Again, not necessarily a problem. Cholesterol helps to transport these fats, fat-soluble nutrients to the areas that need them. And, and often we will see raised cholesterol whenever there's inflammation. It's an automatic response. And in that sense, the cholesterol proteins are acting very much like ambulances. Ambulances aren't bad. Of course, if I was always seeing ambulances at the scene of a crime, at a particular junction, I'd be thinking, well, maybe there's something up with the design of that junction. Maybe we need to consider why do ambulances always get called to that particular place? So I would be very interested in looking into things in more depth if I ever see somebody with particularly high cholesterol levels. But, um, but yes, what we do know is that by themselves, they're very helpful. If, however we see a particularly slow turnover. That's most commonly going to be a thyroid thing. may well relate to mitochondrial thing, especially as it pertains to copper status. But yeah, in those circumstances, we can see a slow turnover rate, and that can allow the LDL to linger for longer in the bloodstream. Still no problem yet. But if you have particularly poor antioxidant status. Well, that's where we might see that LDL become oxidized. And suddenly, we're now seeing a cardiac risk increase. It's not all over this juncture. It's still not a black and white thing because there's another thing that we need to see happen, and that is for this to become an arteriosclerotic plaque. 
And that's something that happens with a lot more ease depending on the particle size of the LDS. In which case, um, now we have such clear research to demonstrate that high-fat diets will generally form large, fluffy LDL particles. The total weight of the, the LDL particles in your bloodstream will indeed increase. But the total number hasn't. And the actual particles themselves, they, they no longer uh, show the same risk as the small, dense LDL that we tend to see uh, reliably formed when people consume high-carbohydrate diets. So in that sense, yes, if you have poor turnover, if you have redox issues, if you have small, dense LDL, and, and that's something that you can test on an LDL subfractions test. If those three um, postulates are achieved, I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. where I feel action must be taken. Um, and a very appropriate step in those circumstances is avoiding uh, fat, especially saturated fat, in order to give us some time off to handle this. But it doesn't make that individual uh, somebody that cannot benefit from eating in a more ancestral manner. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard to put all that stuff in those pretty graphics we were talking about. Earlier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. that, that doesn't fit in a sentence and almost nothing I say ever does. Right. <laughs> Right, exactly. I know. That's why it's so hard. Like when people reach out and they want you to basically educate them in like one direct message. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've had stuff. plenty of like, emails in my time saying, uh, I keep on waking at 3 a.m. What can you suggest? Yeah, like, okay, this is a very loaded, but there could be so many things. Oh my gosh. Well, exactly. How old are you? When did it begin? What triggers may well have played a role in that? What's your nutritional status? What's your diet? Oh what have you tried that's worked? What have you tried that hasn't? Um, yeah. Screen I mean, time. Oh my gosh, there's so many layers. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't see anybody without having at least an organic acids test in front of me beforehand because. Yeah. Well, without that, we're just guessing. That's a good one. Yeah, I should get that done. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. Yeah, right, if you're so, human, you should. <laughs> yes, if you're human. <laughs> so one of the areas Danny and Ben focus on with respect to ketogenic diets is, you know, that stress piece. Danny has actually mm -hmm. spoken on this at conferences. What are your thoughts on the role of carbohydrates and probably more specifically insulin in modulating cortisol and providing a band-aid for when, you know, when the combination of suboptimal training, for example, like high volume, glycolytic training with shorter rest periods, mm. and a diet in the absence of significant carb intake. Well, yeah, and you've pretty much um, touched on the primary benefit of insulin in that, yeah, you're going to need uh, high levels of insulin if you want to consistently and continuously drive glucose into your cells. Now, if you're undertaking exercise that's using up that glucose, that's a pretty desirable state of play. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I think insulin gets a, a bad rap. Um, just because for most people in the Western world, their dietary habits, their inflammatory status has reached a point whereby their insulin signal has gone very horribly wrong. 
and it is driving health issues. It's actually building their risk for a whole host of degenerative diseases. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, it is a problem for a lot of people if they respond badly to it. Um, but yeah, of course, it's got its benefits. I've mentioned the, the uh, way it supports athletic output. Equally, yeah, impact on, on neurotransmitters, um, impact on, on brain function, uh, interactions with, uh, yeah, the, the, the regeneration of certain uh, nerve cells. Yeah, the the impact on uh, yeah, just uh, providing signaling to various key points that regulate our energy usage provides a signal that hey, we're feasting. Times are good, so <laughs> it can have huge benefits there. Um, but obviously, it comes down to that same question: in who are we talking about here? Yes, yes, right. it's so. I mean, I remember um, when I first started talking about this, probably last August, and I was, I remember, um, you know, sitting in front or standing in front of a ketogenic audience, you know, where mm. a lot of people may have never looked at nutrition before, and they find this amazing diet that helps them so much. And that's really the only part of the story they know. And I remember um, using the, uh, you know, the picture of, of, uh, of uh, Macaulay Culkin when he puts his hand okay. on his, on his cheeks you know and he's like ah yeah. you know so i put that <laughs> i put that on one of my slides cuz i was That's like great. hey guess what you know if you have these inverted circadian you know inverted cortisol and your circadian rhythms are all screwed up um you know eating carbs will definitely help that and guys we got to we got to we got to acknowledge that and and people um this is where we love to live and it's not it's not easy to do this because when your goal is to um make people think and, you know, try to increase that knowledge. And, and other people are really just, a lot of them are just like, tell me what I can and can't do. Tell me the, you know, give me the black and white. And, and, right. and, and we're like, just want to be told what to think. yeah, like, wait, wait, there's, there's more, there's more nuance to this. Like you said. Well, exactly. And I think it absolutely ties into the recent transition that, I don't think it's coincidental. Um, I think there's some uh, agendas at uh, play and some interests that are vested. But we are seeing this spoon feeding of science. And it ultimately comes down to tell me what is good, tell me what is bad, what is the best diet for humans. And let's take any one given human well, I would like to know, well, what time of year is it? Oh, <laughs> when yes. was the last time that they had a good old insulin hit? Or equally, are they suffering from a whole host of mitochondrial issues, potentially brought about by um, overfeeding and a lack of nutrients to support the function of that electron transport chain, the major source of antioxidants in the human, uh, of oxidative stress in the human body? So in those instances, they may well want to take a look at steps to reduce the problems going on at that electron transport chain in their mitochondria. Because if they don't, then they're going to see a shutting down of the rate of metabolism because the mitochondria cannot continue without killing themselves. 
Consequently, what's the most effective and accessible tool to do that? I would say ketogenic diet. Sidestepping the primary area of uh, production of those reactive oxygen species, that's one of its primary benefits. Not its only benefit, but that is one of the primary benefits there. Um, And that's such a common problem for people in producing sufficient energy to fuel their metabolism, which means fueling their brain so that they can think more clearly. But also it means getting through that backload of energy compounds that otherwise need to be stored beneath their skin. Hence why we see so many people look to the ketogenic diet as a weight loss diet when actually (laughs) it's more accurate to consider it as a a dietary approach that sidesteps three of the most common obstacles that stop people from losing weight. doesn't mean it's better, but it's often a lot more appropriate. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is like, um, you know, there's so many factors, but someone can definitely use, for example, uh, you know, a higher carb approach as long as they're fats are lower, but then you got to look at compliance and, you know, blood sugar swings and that person's history and the psychology of it. There's lots of things that do make it easier. Um, you also, you mentioned something that it was kind of like a T-ball, you know, layup for me to, to, for this next question. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Seriously. Cause this is, this is perfect. We'll have you tee off on this one. Cause you know, Maura and I have followed a low carbohydrate lifestyle for the better of, you know, half a decade. And, you know, over time, we've learned through experience, as well as, you know, through our research, that there's these other factors at play, like circadian biology, you mentioned, um, changes in the gut microbiome over the seasons. Um, You know, one of the things I noticed, and this is going back like two years, playing around with different things with like, adding carbohydrates in post workout, or, um, after long periods of time, bringing carbohydrates back in, I noticed mm-hmm. personally, and I don't know if the conclusion is right, but what I did notice was that, for example, I would, let's say January of 2019, I started eating just more carbs, like, let's say like 150 grams, like, um, s- like several days a week. And I noticed that my, I lost all blood sugar control for like a week and a half. I didn't know what was what, you know, it, it was, you know, things were staying elevated, possibly due to, you know, what, what our friend, uh, Ben Bickman calls, you know, this glucose intolerance that could, uh, mm-hmm. develop over time. And then I found that actually after doing that, just for a short period of time, I, um, I had better blood sugar control. I had lower fasted glucose and lower, um, postprandial glucose after these meals. And, mm-hmm. um, there's this, um, what, what would you say to someone, let's say someone who's lean, they're metabolically flexible, mm-hmm. things that, that could help them optimize their performance throughout these different seasons with respect to, you know, taking into account these changes in the gut microbiome, circadian biology, just so that they're, because a lot of people will say, look, I've eaten, I have, we have a friend who's eaten, this guy had lots of psychiatric issues, depression, anxiety, and the guy mm-hmm. eats three um hamburgers and bacon a day like he has burger and bacon for breakfast lunch and dinner 
and he's like sick day 600. Yeah. You know? and day, for, day 5 million. Yeah. And for me, mm. I, I, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't yeah. work well. I find that throughout, like in the summer, I'm more prone to a uh, few of my genetic mutations, like make me more prone to uh, cramping. So I, I do add the carbohydrates and, and, and for all these reasons, what would you say to someone who's really trying to optimize their ketogenic diet mm. throughout the seasons and, and, and with all, you know, taking into account all these changes? Well, yeah, and I think it's, that's a, a real nice uh, question because it actually starts to uh, relate to the sort of recommendations I'm giving out in clinic uh, on a regular basis. So um, most of my work is with individuals with complex fatigue uh, issues and uh, metabolic issues that just aren't responding elsewhere. That is the majority, and then there's also the athletes. So it's an interesting mix in that sense. Um, what binds the two is that both are, yeah, are very much at their end of their energy resources. Mm. But where that brings them out at is a very different point. In any case, yeah, let's look at you know, what would I suggest for somebody who is clearly very flexible metabolically and then yeah what would i suggest for somebody who is subject to prior psychiatric issues that were resolved through changing their diet so for flexible it really is a case of common sense <laughs> um in that sense yeah what is better serving your goals and I'm very comfortable to include their greater goals in that because one of the reasons we want to be healthy and live a long life is so that we can be content and happy. Um, and so in that sense, um, if he feels better on, on the ketogenic diet versus carbohydrates, well, great. But what if he only feels a tiny, teeny-weeny bit better and he's going on holiday to Italy with his <laughs> wife? Is he going to have more enjoyment from having a pizza whilst overlooking the most spectacular old town and the blue seas. That sounds like a pretty nice evening out to me. <laughs> um, and yeah, for, for cultural purposes, if nothing else, you won't catch me going to Italy and not eating pizza. <laughs> um, but um, at the same time, it's a case of well, what happens if he now eats carbs for a month? Does he notice that that little pad of fat is back? Does he find that actually his time on the 2K row is suddenly just just up to itself? He's feeling a little less clear. He's humming and ahhing a little bit more. Well, in those instances, well, clearly a perfect candidate for cyclical uh, eating. Which, of course, is exactly what we would expect almost all of our ancestors um, to have consumed, other than those that uh, uh, evolved uh, very close to the equator throughout evolution. Uh, but for the majority of people that I'm dealing with, yeah, that, that cyclical uh, approach is one that does bear a lot of benefits. And, of course, there are the diehards who will tell you that you know you should be eating keto in the winter and eating carbs in the summer and i do see justification behind that but equally at the same time no matter how hard we try we will never fully replicate our evolutionary conditions um 
just by the time you're born, there's so much epigenetic uh, expression that's already occurred that means you can never and will never go back to a scenario that's perfectly in tune with our ancestors. So I feel like our best bet is to take what we know works, to use the observations that we can come to from, from, from researching what we know. And, and use that to do what we want, which is ultimately to support people's health so they can have a better life. So that's why I wouldn't be caught up in the idea of trying to perfectly mirror uh, evolutionary conditions. It's a pointless and futile task. But let's, let's take that information and integrate it in a realistic manner that serves the aims of the individuals we're working with, um, as in be happy and healthy. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a slightly different situation when it comes to our other friends who previously experienced all these psychiatric disorders um, and found that by eating meat with some meat and occasionally some eggs, that they suddenly resolved. Now, on a very simple basis, we 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 can uh, consider well what will happen if we say do you know what go back to carbs? We don't know because they haven't yet trialed that. If they have and they've experienced a dramatic worsening in the condition, well, there's a couple of considerations. Maybe they are one of those few people with um, rampant autoimmune issues that will always need a more extreme intake in order to control them. Um, those people are particularly rare, but they definitely exist. Very likely going to be the type of individuals that experience dramatic immune issues right from childhood onwards. Um, so it may well be that some people will simply need to compensate for that. And this is a totally adequate way of doing things if they are sensible about uh, taking care of the dietary composition. I often yeah. see that that's sorely missing. But but yes, if, if that is a diet that's working for them, it would be dramatically, it would be thoroughly dogmatic for somebody in my position to say, yeah, but that's, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, in, in those issues, I'm going to say, well, let's run some tests and ensure that you're getting what you need. However, for most people, there was a very specific reason why they were experiencing those issues. And there was a specific reason why the dietary shift that they undertook uh, was so helpful for them. Now, maybe that's to do with the nutrient content of the food. Psychiatric issues, zinc, copper, highly linked. So too for methyl groups, which... Naturally, you, you eat something like liver and the uh, level of active folates in there, the B12, uh, as well as various other compounds involved in methylation, the carnitine, the creatine, the choline. There's, there's a whole load of reasons why that angle could be playing out and influencing those issues. Key thing is at this stage, I don't know. Um, but certainly I can run tests ahead of any shifts. We can equally consider that maybe it wasn't actually to do 
with the increased nutrients that this individual is now getting. Their diet beforehand is a good clue as to whether that was the case or not. But, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's purely to do with energy metabolism. Mitochondrial issues, either a blockade on this enzymatic entry point for carbohydrates into the Krebs cycle. This is the PDH enzyme, and it's so commonly shut down in cases of sustained inflammation. It's also shut down in cases of B1 shortage, uh, which can easily be induced if you're eating nothing but refined carbohydrates. It can also be induced if you're exposed to mold. Um, there's a number of ways through this enzyme can be shut down. But if that's the case, then of course a ketogenic diet is going to work better for that individual. But we could simply unblock that and now they can eat however they want and not experience any worsening. Um, so equally at the same time, what if it's actually to do not with the energy metabolism, not with the increased nutrient content, but what if it's to do with the chemicals contained within the plant foods? Um, now, all plant foods contain poisons. What's interesting is those poisons generally, normally, often have a thoroughly beneficial effect because they actually induce a disproportionately large antioxidant response to protect the cell. Um, and this is a perfect example of hormesis. Hormesis being the phrase we use to describe a stimuli that is applied to the body that's technically bad, but results in a positive response to it. Exercise is the perfect example. But, but here is um, yeah, a parallel. If somebody has been up for four days, they've run 80 miles to deliver you a crucial message, and then you and ask them, mate, do you mind running another 26 miles? <laughs> Exercise is good for you, no? It's not going to be good for this individual. And yet, if we allowed them a week off to rest and recuperate, they'd probably really enjoy that run down the beach in sunshine. Wonderful. They now benefit from the exercise. Polyphenols are contained in a huge array of plant produce. And it's interesting that you know, these polyphenols and you know, subgroup that flavonoids, they're so often held up as the epitome of healthy eating. Um, we're often bowled over with the, this, this wonderful option for phytonutrients and high antioxidants. But what, again, is missing when we don't look at the mechanism is the way that they work. And the way that they work is by essentially poisoning cells, insulting cells. But they do so in such a way that engages the cell protection response. It's called the NRF2 response. Mm -hmm. And that induces an array of antioxidant compounds, a huge protective response. And just like exercise, that little insult leaves people 
more equipped to deal with further insults there on after. It conditions the cells into a higher level of protective compound production. And that's why for most people, these plants, especially these superfoods, you know, the milk thistles, the curcumin, green tea, resveratrol. Yeah, why for most people, these actually are beneficial. Um, but there's a lot of people, and, and maybe energy issues at play, maybe cofactor shortage, the low nutrient status means that they don't have the, the available resources for these enzyme systems to work effectively. Maybe they're already up to their neck in oxidative stress because of dysbiosis and chronic infections, or, or maybe allergies, or maybe mold exposure. In those instances, they've got no more resources that they can give. And these insults will be just that. They will insult the cell. And if that's happening at the gut lining, well, you know, good luck with the oxidative stress that we know will reliably open up gaps between those cells and allow a shed load of contents from the guts that should stay in the guts into the bloodstream. I, I love that so much. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I thought of was this, you know, you got to always keep in mind your allostatic load, you know, mm. like, oh, okay, sauna is great. You know, exercise is great. Intermittent fasting. And then it's like, holy, let me you just have put to tell that- me about that. I'm the queen of like overdoing <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. She'll be like totally well, adrenally like, you know. Well, no, I'm learning my lesson. I'm yeah. learning. I'm learning. I'm also, I'm pretty intuitive. So I'm good about listening to my body. She but really like a, an example would be like, uh, when I did my 60 hour fast, mm-hmm. uh, I knew better at that point to not push it with exercise. But then on the second night, you know how fasts are like mm-hmm. the nighttime is always the worst when people are eating dinner around you. You're just like, what do I do? <laughs> and I made the mistake of going in the sauna and like right away I was feeling Ooh. it. Like I immediately, my body was like, and we're dying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. One, definitely. one allostatic burden too many. Right. Yes. Yeah, and it yeah. is it is interesting. Yeah, the the dosage makes all the difference, and that's yeah. why when I sometimes see people they come in for their initial consultation, and they're like, "Do you know what? I started uh, this brand new um, protocol a few months back because yeah, you know, it's time. It's time to get healthy." Um, so I, I've just been taking this superfood blend. It's said take two on a bottle, but I'm taking six with the um, breakfast, six with dinner. And uh, oh, wow, I must have a big detox uh, load to get through because I've had die off every day since. Wow. You think, no, you have just subjected yourself to a sustained and spectacular oxidative stress, <laughs> which is wrecking your metabolism with yeah. every day you continue it. Listen to our bodies, maybe. Yes. Spectacular. I love it. Yeah, so true. So, all right. So, um, in the past, you know, you have shared how ketogenic diets are the only diets that did not induce yo-yo weight gain. Uh, I mm. have had this experience as well. Um, many others as mm. well. Would you like to explain your thoughts, you know, on why you think this this is? Well, yeah, and um, as much as I'm tempted to uh, get polysyllabic again, I feel like this is actually <laughs> easily explained in, in the most simple of concepts. It turns out that humans 
actually have the ability to adapt to starvation. Who knew that <laughs> the remaining brand of hominids, us, the Homo sapiens, who knew that we got to where we got by being able to withstand spells of starvation? And the way the body does that is through two mechanisms. It has the ability to down-regulate the energy usage. And it does it very effectively through um, cell-by-cell low regulation uh, based on the amount of ATP coming through by reducing the waste for heat. Of course, it's not really waste, um, but it will down-regulate our heat production to save on uh, the, the energy output. And equally, from a central level, uh, we're seeing hypothalamic changes that will alter hormonal balance to ensure that we behave in a fashion that doesn't use up that valuable and dwindling energy resource. There's a reason why if we go on a long-term starvation diet, testosterone and estrogen levels are going to plummet like a stone. And of course, there's the thyroid regulation too. There's, there's other enzyme systems. We, we could create an even longer list. But the key thing is there's a lot of smart systems in the body that have been selected for by evolution because they work to do something really vital to massively down-regulate your usage of energy when there's no energy coming in. So that's one of these major shifts and it works great to keep us alive. The only cost is that we get headaches and brain fog. We snap at those around us. We can't <laughs> sleep properly. And we start dreaming of cards. But hey, apart from that, no cost. Um, the, the, the other issue that we see and the second part of that survival machinery is the enzymatic shifts that then take place the thyroid signaling that remains in place every time you starve yourself you've created a message um, that your brain will recognize and will regulate from the top down from that point on to ensure that just like the exercise it's better conditioned to handle the next challenge and there's a really effective way of preparing yourself for future starvation. It's storing body fat whenever you get the chance. And that's the basis of that yo-yo diet and why you don't see any studies ever after 160 years of weight loss research, after hundreds of millions of dollars poured into these studies, there's still not a single one that shows long-term weight loss from a low-calorie diet. I love that. There's, you know, obviously other things at play. I, I'm a big believer in set point theory. It's amazing how our bodies, you know, fight so hard to to maintain homeostasis one day, one way or the other. Mm. And you know, you see the confirmation when you see these very low-calorie diets. I mean, as little as eight weeks. You can you can see these changes that last years with ghrelin and mm. uh, probably to a lesser extent, you know, metabolism in general. But like, you know, something like this guy's not eating enough. I'm going to make him eat more. I'm going to I'm going to jack up the ghrelin. Um, and, and I think 
that's why for me, we've, we've gotten lean doing a million different things, you know, because we've been obsessed with this stuff. We've been vain for a very long time. My wife and I. Yeah, both. being skinny. I mean, I, there's many ways to be skinny. That's, yeah, that are very unhealthy. The, Trust uh, me. I know them all. Diet doctor. Mm-hmm. Popcorn yeah. Diet. It's all about calorie restriction and you're like, your stomach is a disaster, but I mean, yeah, that's what I would do. But you're thin. I'm very skinny. So that, that's all that well, matters. Well, no, I, it's definitely, it's a thing. Yeah. And it is a thing. Yeah, I, I can recognize that there are a lot of people that almost consider there's health issues and then there's you know, there's body composition issues and, and they're not as important. But depending on where we're at with the body composition and depending how we feel about that, that can have such a huge impact on our ability to enjoy life. So... Yeah, it, it's a thing. And of course, it's always going to have a difference uh, for women. And they're not the only people that struggle with body composition and, and, and have those woes. But certainly, you have that combination of evolution and social patterns and the conditioning and the pressures that are placed on women. It's always much more likely when I see a human being in clinic for the first time they're much more likely to have had a history of fad diets and yo-yo dieting and uh, a starvation metabolism if they're female. Yeah, man. Well, look, I, I just honestly, you, you over-delivered. Seriously, we, we appreciate so much. I wanted to give you one more chance before we uh, say goodbye to kind of just give us you know, anything that you're currently researching or working on that excites you. And then, of course, where where people can find you online because we, we want to help you with that. We want to help you uh, get in front of more people that we need more. We need more sanity. <laughs> yes. We okay, cool. Um, I guess the, the, there's always quite a few different uh, Microsoft Word documents accumulating <laughs> relevant research. The, the one thing that really has sort of caught my, uh, my, my, my research I have late is this potential point of interplay between psychology um, and, and the, the mind and physiology in regards to how I'm seeing individuals recall and experience physical sensations that they haven't tapped into for many years from visiting psychotherapists, several of whom I end up referring various clients to. And I'm also seeing a a similar startup response in regards to this sensory input. Um, I'm seeing that from people going to the chiropractors. And I see a really similar response when I undertake uh, support for mitochondrial function, which allows people to suddenly produce energy in cells that were otherwise a semi-dormant, which of course includes the neural cells. So uh, looking at the role of muscular tension in starving certain cells of the oxygen that they need to produce that energy, and thus you know the chiropractic, the body work, looking at neural circuitry, which actually results in glutamate signals arriving in neural networks that previously weren't switched on, and of course, allowing those same networks the energy that they need to 
to, to, to function effectively and send those signals, those physical sensations, the language that the brain used to communicate. I'm seeing a big crossover there. And so I'd be massively interested in hearing from practitioners that are seeing some of their clients are responding really well and some of them are not. Um, in those areas that influence this oxygen-induced ATP production, which may be limited by muscular tension, may be limited by connections and sideways inhibitory emotions and anxiety, which, of course, is in the psychological sphere, and equally in those individuals that either can't produce the energy because their mitochondrial function is, is limited uh, by the nutrient shortage, or by excessive oxidative stress that causes a protective shutdown, or maybe because there's so much uncontrolled inflammation going on that it's inhibiting the availability of those energy in non-immune cells. In any case, after that ramble, I hope there's at least one practitioner out there who has a light bulb flicker in the deepest, darkest recesses of their brain. Or drop me a line and we'll chat and... Uh, yeah, basically, I want somebody to tell me where am I going wrong in these connections? What have I not? What have I not asked? Where where should I be probing that I'm not? That would be a good outcome. Well, kudos to you for seeing the connection because you would not have seen it if you weren't looking for it, uh, if you weren't curious enough to to, to look for it. Um, and honestly, I'm going to note the time that you said this because. Um, this would be something good for us to put as a, an audio clip for, for anybody who's listening or, or looking at our stories. And then maybe, maybe you can get, um, uh, connected with someone around the world. I mean, gosh, it's so amazing. This is why, I mean, I was a medical device rep and I, I quit a job, you know, that was very lucrative to do this. And it's because of this connection that we have because of <clears throat> the, the miracle of, of technology, obviously a double-edged sword, but you know, the ability to connect with people, who you didn't even know existed. And, and as you know, mm. a lot of these people don't have a platform and you're just like, how does this person not have a million followers? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, God. exactly. But it turns out some people look better in a bikini and they do yes. have a million followers. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, this and is the world we live in. It really is, man. Well, okay. Cool. So, what is the? We got the uh, the Instagram and the uh, and the and the website. What what are those again? So, the Instagram is Marek Doyle Nutrition, and the website is www.marekdoyle.com. Fantastic, man. Well, thank Amazing. you so much for spending this time with us. This was. This was fantastic. I can see why Ben loved uh, talking <laughs> with you so much. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on and uh, thanks for making it fun. Likewise. Absolutely. Cool. Well, we'll catch up sooner or later, I guess. Absolutely. Have a fantastic evening, Merrick. Take care. You too.